0: It's Friday, March the 15th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. David Runciman is Professor of Politics at Cambridge University, where he is Head of the Department of Politics and International Studies. He also hosts the excellent Talking Politics podcast, which we've mentioned here before, and his most recent book is titled How Democracy Ends. We talked about the ways in which uh, traditional ideas of democracy are being challenged by social, demographic and technological changes, but also, of course, we couldn't help but talk about Brexit, David Runciman. Um, it's been a very Brexity week, and I'm sure we will touch on Brexit a little bit over the course of uh, of the course of this discussion. But first of all, I actually wanted to talk to you about your book because that's what you're coming to Dublin to discuss. Um, how democracy ends? There's a there's a sort of a there's a very brisk trade in the publishing industry these days on this subject, isn't there?
1: Yeah, there is. I think if I'd known how many books there would be with a similar title, I might have chosen a different one.
0: Um, and what do you make of that brisk trade? What do you think has caused it? Is it uh, why is there such a market for for this particular question at the moment? Is it because it's a real, live, uh, realistic question for us all right now?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's absolutely a real question. I mean, the one-word answer is Trump. I think almost within days of his being elected, you started to see these kinds of reflections coming out of people wondering if you know if, if our democracies were going to fail. What would it look like, and how do we know it wouldn't look like this? My book though it has a title that's quite a lot like a lot of the other ones, is actually pushing back against them in many ways. Because I think there was then this quite quick assumption that if we were going to recognise democratic failure, it would look like it looked like in the past. So there's this sort of regular motif that maybe we're rerunning the 1930s, maybe we're going back to when democracy fell apart before. And my argument is that we're not. so if if it is going to fail, it's going to fail in new ways. and i'm I'm really pushing back against the idea that you look at a politician like Trump, he reminds you of maybe Mussolini or something, and you think, uh, you know this is a risk of the rerun of fascism, the kind of warning from history approach. I think uh, we shouldn't be thinking about the past, we should be thinking about the future. Yeah,
0: I mean, let me ask you, I'm very interested in that pushing back. I mean, we've had a number of those writers on this podcast, for example, Timothy Snyder, who's maybe the the most most prominent one. I I would
1: say if there's someone I'm pushing back against, in some ways it's him.
0: Um, and so the, the counter argument to his argument, and I, I don't want to do him a disservice, but his argument essentially is that as, as an expert in in the worst excesses of totalitarian mass murder in Eastern Europe in the 1930s and 1940s, he's drawing specific parallels and correlations between then and now.
1: Yeah. And I, so I don't deny the parallels. And I think it's not hard in a way to find, particularly at the level of what the politicians say, Um, quite chilling parallels and and clearly we're living through an age where the the worst of early 20th century politics is is sounding like it's coming back in the anti-semitism, the conspiracy theories the suspicion of foreigners, outsiders, the mistrust of experts and so on. My argument is that even if it's happening now in ways that sound like the past, it's happening in societies that are unrecognisable compared to the past. And we we make the mistake that I think human beings often make, which is when we're in trouble and when we don't know what's going on, we think that we need to find something that's familiar and kind of reminds us of what's going on around us so we've got an anchor for it. And we miss all the ways in which our predicament is different. So I think uh, even if we sound like the 1930s and 1940s, we are nothing like the 30s and 40s. And in my book, I go through lots of reasons why. I mean, I can do, you know, the shorthand is, We're so much richer than those societies. Those were developing societies by contemporary standards. We're so much older. So democracy fell apart in the 30s in societies which were mainly made up of young people and lots of angry young men. And if you get this kind of politics in societies of angry old men, it's very different. We're networked, we're educated, we're healthier. I mean, it's it's broadly a good news, it's bad politics in a good news situation. I'm not saying it's going to end well. All I'm saying is it's not going to end the way it did in the past because we are not them.
0: Well so if we accept that point and I certainly I think I do for for one that we're not going to end up in a situation with brown shirts on the streets or tanks around yeah. the tanks around the television station or whatever those kind of models are that we're familiar with from from previous periods what are the threats and how do you think they could manifest themselves let's say in a time frame of the you know the next 10 years or so
1: So in a way, I think the threat is not that our democracies are going to break like they broke in the 30s, sort of almost snap in two. um, And that politicians are going to come along who just sweep away the institutions, the rule of law and replace them with coercion and violence. I think it's much more likely that we're going to get stuck and that we're going to kind of go round and round in circles. I mean, in, in this Brexity week of all weeks, I think. There is that um, widespread sense that we could keep going around in circles for a long time. And it's partly because back in the 30s, the institutions were pretty fragile, even in established democracies like the United States. Many of the things we associate with democracy were not that deeply entrenched, not least the vote and who was entitled to vote. We now live in societies where most of the institutions in stable democracies are almost taken for granted. They're a kind of background fact of life. Most of us, I've lived all my life, I'm 52 years old, I've never known anything different. I've never imagined anything different than elections, the rule of law, political parties competing for my vote. So we could keep going with that for a long, long time, while it doesn't work, while it fails to address the big problems, while it allows frustration to build up. Given that we're not going to break, I think the big danger is that we go through the motions of democracy while the really big problems, the big challenges, whether it's climate inequality, an interconnected network world where maybe real power is now in Silicon Valley or in China, the big questions kind of swirl around our politics and we keep just waiting for the next election to tell us what's going on. We could do that not just for 10 years. I think we could do that for 30 years.
0: And and what is it that has us so stuck? What has changed or what has brought us to this particular position? Does it have to do with the, the complexity and the interconnectedness of the world that we live in, that, which seems to deprive people at a perhaps a national electoral level of, of, of a sense of any real agent, agency, any sense that by voting in a particular
1: way, something
0: will have some actual impact on their day-to-day lives? Or is there something else going on?
1: Yes, I definitely think that that's part of it. As the world becomes more complicated. Now, for one of the great things about democracy is it's a kind of simplifying politics. It it boils issues down. It gives people choices. It often gives them fairly binary either or choices. But in a world of increasing complexity, those choices kind of, they bounce off the surface of things. We make our choice and then the world doesn't care in a way because it's it's too complex. So, So no question that is a part of what's going on. I also think it's actually that when we think about democracy, we think about a kind of whole set of institutions and ways of doing politics that have served us pretty well for maybe 40, 50 years. And we think that we have to defend the whole package. And one of the reasons that we're stuck is we really can't imagine what it would be like to do democracy without all of these things working together. Political parties, mass media, you know, enfranchised citizenry, um, A welfare state you know the kind of tax systems that we have and so on we're really struggling to imagine anything outside that and it's partly because it's been such a success story i think it's incredibly hard to change things that you have lived with and that have served you well and then the one other thing i think that's going on here is that i think a big part of this story and you see it in britain the brexit vote the original referendum really brought this out is that we've got these new divides in our politics. So I think the two big ones are the generational divide, old versus young, and the educational divide, essentially university-educated versus not. I mean, those were the two big divisions in the Brexit vote. And they don't map onto our politics. I mean, there aren't, it, it doesn't map onto party politics. It kind of cuts across it. And the parties are really struggling. I mean, in Britain, the two main parties are really struggling to straddle those divides. And in a way, those divides have just trapped the parties. They they genuinely do not know which way to turn. And that's relatively new. I mean, it's new because until recently, there weren't as many older people as there are now, and there certainly weren't as many university educated people as there are now. So that's one of the reasons why this is new.
0: I want to come to some of those questions of the demographics of age, which which you write about very interestingly. But just to step back one um, step, there that sure. the, the the question of whether there are systemic problems that can be addressed with systemic. Um, solutions as opposed to something i suppose more, more deep seated in in the way in the way societies are changed you know i mean a lot of people you talk about politics being stuck it's certainly a regular commentary both in the uk and the us which privilege a very a very binary form of politics in yeah. the way that they organize their elections and their and, and and their systems and that binary politics i mean has has strengths but it also has weaknesses and one of the weaknesses is it doesn't allow for a diversity of views it it actively suppresses you know and elect- Electoral presence for, for example, an environmentalist movement, or indeed an mm-hmm. anti-immigration movement, or a range of other things. And in the case of the UK, the only small parties that get any purchase are regional ones because of the because of the because of the way the electoral system works. Is yeah. it, it when people talk about the, you know the the stuckness of Washington DC and increasingly in the light of what we've been watching in Westminster over the last while, the stuckness of British yeah. politics? You know, is it, it, are there? Is, would you just be talking about sticking plasters if you were talking about coming to some, you know, having an electoral system that was more representative of what people actually wanted, having a parliamentary system that perhaps had a written constitution. Are those are those remedies or are those just kind of sticking blasters?
1: Um So you just asked me a binary question, is it? Uh, whereas it <laughs> feel might feel free to answer in a, a non-binary It might be somewhere between a remedy and a sticking plaster, but I completely take your point, and actually I think you're right, that um, there is a particular problem here with the either-or-first-past-the-post systems, which at various points in history, have seemed to have key advantages. You know, that They're more, in a sense, adaptable in a crisis. You can have a, a dramatic change. But at the moment, they look like a real handicap for a democracy. Um, I don't think it's a coincidence that in Britain and the US, those are the two places both where politics is stuck and also where the kind of you know, poster boy or poster event of uh, Western populism are to the fore, Trump and Brexit. I don't think, say, moving to a proportional representation system would be a sticking plaster, not least if you just run this in reverse. I'm pretty sure if Britain had a proportional representation system, we wouldn't now be trying to leave the European Union, because I don't see any way that passes. I mean, in a sense, the referendum only happened because the Conservative Party in 2015, to their amazement, as 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 well as everyone else, won a majority In a parliament, and if you win a majority in the British parliament, you kind of have to enact your manifesto. So changes to the uh, the way we organise elections and voting systems can have a huge impact. And, And it's not just here. So you look at the French voting system; it's a kind of weird voting system. It produced Macron. It's very hard to see how any other voting system would have given you Macron. You need that sort of two stage two round presidential voting you don't get trump without the electoral college after all he lost so abolishing the electoral college abolishes trump these things really matter and yet it would be a mistake i think to think that adjusting voting systems and some constitutional arrangements would give us back the democracy that served us so well towards the end of the 20th century because of the things that you mentioned earlier those those deeper and wider Structural forces at work, international, global forces of interconnectedness and complexity and proportional representation would not change the relationship between the British government and the power of Facebook. It would not change the relationship between the European Union and the challenge of climate change. But it might mean that we didn't have Brexit and Trump.
0: Yeah, because I mean, we, for example, we here have a proportional representation, a highly proportional representation system, and it and it comes with its own challenges as well. And yeah, I think what probably sure. what some people would would say is it it leads to a kind of mushy centrism, um, which it's very difficult to escape from. And other people other people would have would have different views about that. But but the other thing that seems to me that would have happened in the United Kingdom and the United States in the last few years is that there's been this hollowing out of these great binary parties which have been around mm. for a very long time which has allowed a number of things to happen not least the fact that they've allowed they've been able to be captured by by fragments or segments of their support so you know that Trump can come from nowhere and uh, and win the Republican Party nomination or indeed that the kind of you know the Brexiteers can essentially you know uh, even though they're a, they're a minority of the, of the overall view they can capture the Conservative Party and capture the country ultimately.
1: Yeah it's true I mean I think that even within that there are these really interesting variations the British Labour Party is is in a different position for that in one sense it has been captured by a minority group that the views of the people who are now running it were once thought to be absolutely on the fringes on the other hand it's become a mass membership movement um and it's it's, it's drawn all sorts of people into politics who weren't there before. So these parties have become... You know, the real challenge is that they become the vehicle for everything. You know, everyone has to funnel what they want to do through the two main parties because there's no other route under these systems to power. Um, and so we've got this extraordinary situation in Britain where probably politics has never had more diverse views across the electorate, more divisions, more ways you can slice and dice the electorate to come up with... What are the tribes? Who are the tribes? And yet, in the last election, it was like we were back in the 1970s. The two main parties just monopolized, if you leave out the nationalists, the Scottish nationalists and so on, the whole of the vote. So you have a completely uh, fragmented electorate increasingly forced into binary choices. And to me, the most astonishing piece of polling in Britain for many years was in the same week that when people were asked, how would you vote in a general election? And as always, it's coming out these days at about 40 40 Labour Conservative. Conservative are a bit ahead at the moment for God knows what reason. Um, but then when people were asked, do you think either of the two main parties represent you and your views? 69% said no. Hmm. Now, that is a system that is properly, properly stuck.
0: There's, um, I mean, that's an extraordinary number, isn't it? And it does feed into a thing, a narrative which has been going on for quite a long time, which is that, and you see it in the United States as well, is that when asked, people Despise politicians. Should be said, they despise journalists as well. I'm not sure what they think about <laughs> academics, um, but they really despise poli- they despise the idea of politicians. And you see this this kind of discourse around all you know all over the place that they're only in it for themselves and that they're mm. grubbing, you know, and they're they're, they're, the, they're the swamp or wha- wha- whatever the phrase may be. Um, and there's a kind of a strange disconnect there of, of of not accepting, or or perhaps they're correct that that there is a connection between the politicians who are there and we who put them there
1: yeah and and again, I think in democratic politics, there are always these disconnects. No one said the voters had to be consistent. Most people still on the whole, although I think in Britain this is under strain because of brexit, but until recently, most people said they hated politicians, but they quite liked their local MP, uh, especially if they happened to have come across them and met them and worked out that this was a hard working person doing their best in difficult circumstances. But the political class, this thing that 's called the political class, is now the subject of contempt um and i think one of the things that's going on here again that that's new and and reflects the sort of big social changes that we're going through is once upon a time the political class really were sort of remote from the voters they were this sort of educated elite often coming from a really narrow section of society now you have countries like britain like ireland like most of western europe where particularly among younger voters getting onto half of people, go to university now and kind of come from the same world as the politicians who represent them. And so you've got this new kind of division where you have half of the voters who look at the politicians and think, well, they're no different from us. I mean, they're not better educated than us. They're not smarter than us. Um, Why do they get to decide for us? And then you have the other half of the electorate who don't have those advantages, who haven't been to university, who feel excluded in various ways. And for them, in a way, the whole system looks like a conspiracy against them because the politicians are, are like one half of the electorate but not like them you know there's almost no one in the British Parliament who didn't go to university representing a nation where more than half of the population didn't go to university and then the central issue of the day Brexit is one on which whether or not you went to university was the biggest single determinant of how you were likely to vote that means that Parliament is fundamentally unrepresentative but that's only true for a country like this one where Mass higher education, which is a phenomenon really of the last fifteen twenty years, um, you know, again to go back to where we started, the nineteen thirties are not a good template to understand that dynamic.
0: Mm, not at all. Not at all. And uh, and if if you accept that, which I which I do, it does raise the question of whether representative democracy is at all fit for purpose in this new yeah. world of advanced post-industrial societies with. That kind of divide, which you're talking about there, we've got a system which is really rooted in a, I suppose, a notion that, that emerged gradually in the in, in, in the 19th century when our societies were ordered in an entirely different way.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I, I increasingly think that, um, and I think the drive for more direct democracy, for more uh, referendums, and again, you see this in Europe, the rise of parties like Five Star. Uh, although Five are in trouble again, but that, that we're offering in Italy, that we're offering much more direct, say, the use of new technology to give the voters a, a role, not just in choosing their representatives, but choosing the platform on which their representatives stand, input into policy. This is only going to grow, I think. But at the moment, it's still, it's so crude because it comes out in the form of these binary referendum choices, uh, more direct primaries as in, on the United States model, Whereas actually what we need, I think, is to really open up our minds to the possibility that that tight package that sort of at the end of history, as it were, the thing that was called the end of history, the 1990s package that really did seem to be the best way of organising politics, it's fragmenting in all sorts of ways. It's coming apart. It doesn't mean that democracy is about to relapse back into authoritarianism, but holding that package together this way of voting, these kinds of parties, this kind of information structure, this sort of political elite, this sort of professionalisation. That is probably over. That's done. And you have to decide which bits of the package you want to hold on to, which bits of the package no longer work, and which what you want to add. Do you want to add citizens' assemblies? I mean, in Ireland, you, in Britain, it's amazing the impact that, in your most recent referendum, the role of citizens' assemblies, which has almost become this sort of template now. People say... Maybe, and I kind of agree with this, you know, maybe the Brexit referendum, the problem wasn't that it was a referendum, but that we did it in this kind of unbelievably crude, almost prehistoric way. You can build all sorts of forms of communication and participation into democratic politics, but only if you recognize that this thing we call democracy, that we think we have to defend to the death, is already coming apart.
0: I mean it's interesting you mentioned the citizens assemblies because obviously one of the differences between Ireland and the UK is that we we have a culture of referendums because of our yeah. because of our Constitutional setup, um, and so anything to amend a constitution requires a referendum, and that's caused yeah. problems. Well, you have something
1: else. You have a constitution, so. and we have and a, a written constitution. Yeah, it's so hard for us to know what it is we're amending. But anyway,
0: and that 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 that, that is pretty important too. But in a way, that the citizens' assembly is a is a reaction to the fact that some of the problems which you've mentioned that referendums cause. That sometimes they're over binary. Um, sometimes, if they're if they're not uh, of what you might call first order issues, they become plebiscites on what people think of the government of the day or whatever yeah. it might be, and they just generally run off course in 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 ways that they're not supposed to. I, I just want to ask you another question, though, about all all that. Which is, I was listening to your um, your podcast this week um, uh, about about Brexit, of course. And at one point, I'm not sure. I think it was I think it was you who, who pointed out how politicians these days put themselves on the record on every issue because they're self-publishing on Twitter yeah. 10 or 20 times a day. And they're making statements which then in the future, they're, they're, it's going to be presumably difficult for them to resile from. So that kind of cre- area of creative ambiguity, which is a really important part of, of how politics work, is not open to them. And I was I was thinking about that afterwards. And one of the things that struck me that has changed uh, about the way the politics work is actually that's not a problem. People say things on Twitter and they don't seem to care that much and the people who elect them don't seem to care that much if they say something entirely differently. Three months later, obviously, the best example of that is in the White House. But that seems to be a kind of a broader point about the way in which political discourse or the importance of a statement or maybe even the importance of a position, all those sort of things seems to have thinned out and it's, it's all become more performative and less real in some way.
1: Yeah, and I think you're right. and I, I think in a way both of these things are going on. So I, I do think you see around the current Brexit, I don't know what the word for it is, whatever it has been happening in the last week, um, both of those things. So, so there's a sort of general corrosion of the idea that commitments matter, but it's partly because so many commitments are being made. Um, but there is also the opportunity for people to use these these commitments as a kind of lever to try and exercise some control over the situation and say we can't because we said this, we said that. It, it's, it's it is actually I think almost a form of chaos that simultaneously politicians make a stand every 20 minutes and it you know it is a stand they say the most extraordinary things you, you see it at the moment even with the prospect of this deal coming back for the third time simultaneously people indicating that uh, though they said you know a week ago they would rather die than vote for it, they might be going to vote for it. And people saying they would rather die than vote for it. Um, And both of these things are a function of an an age of constant, immediate comment on everything that's going on. I mean, after all, the two things that are true of the British Parliament is they all went to university and they all have a Twitter account. I I don't actually know. I suppose some of them don't. Maybe uh, Bill Cash doesn't have a Twitter account. I have no idea. He probably does, actually. (laughs) But... um, it's, it's very hard to be the politician who says in the age of Twitter I'm not going to do it. Um, everyone is drawn in. Uh, so I think both both could be true that politicians are both over committing themselves on a day-by-day basis and also not making any commitments that mean anything and that's bad. <laughs>
0: it is bad i suppose and more broadly of course what's going on is it is an enormous revolution in the way that we communicate with each other and, yeah. and, and and interact with each other and that has to be having really profound effects on the way that we order our society which really we have no idea how they're going to turn out or or continue to pan out over the next the next decades or indeed centuries
1: yeah i mean so so what, one theme that i try and draw out in my book i write quite a lot about the impact of technology on digital technology on democracy and again it it tends to be framed as this kind of binary question either this technology is destroying democracy we're kind of in in that phase at the moment having if you'd gone back sort of 15 years when there was a lot of almost utopian hope that digital technology was going to give us this new wonderful shiny direct democracy and now we're in the dystopian phase where it's all russian bots and cambridge analytica and elections being stolen And, and my feeling is that it's it's got to be good and bad. You know, there's not going to be a sort of either or to this. Mm. But the really deep story here is that if the two things that democracies do when they work well, representative democracies do when they work well and when they did work well for much of the second half of the 20th century is that they, you know, they are practical problem-solving systems of politics that deliver material benefits for citizens. They make them better off. They make them safer and more secure. They're responsive. But they also give people a voice. They give people a sense that they are being heard, not just in elections, but that your views count. So it's kind of, I think the way I phrase it in the book is it's results plus respect or results plus a voice. And this technology potentially is enhancing both. I mean, that potentially using this technology, we could get a much more nimble adaptable politics which is actually responsive in real time to what people want to the kind of transportation or healthcare systems they want or a more efficient welfare state and it's definitely giving people more voice i mean we've seen that already people are much more able particularly to voice dissatisfaction and anger the problem is those two things are moving in different directions so the kind of problem solving side of it you know we we might end up with more efficient welfare states but it'll be a kind of technocratic solution And at the same time, the voice giving people a platform to express their frustration and anger is often being directed against those kind of solutions because people, when you have a system that's kind of tracking your preferences in real time, you don't feel like you're being listened to. You feel like you're a data point. Mm. And if you feel like you're a data point and you have a Twitter platform on which to express your loathing of politicians, the solutions bit of democracy and the voice bit of democracy will not go together they will be at odds with each other that to me is the sort of 10 20 year challenge of democracy and technology that actually what we're seeing is the possibility that the problem solving side and the giving people a voice side are coming apart and again they're not coming apart and that that leads to fascism i don't know where it leads because there is no historical parallel
0: I, want to, I said I wanted to come back to demographics because I think it's your your analysis of the interaction between demographics and politics is one of the most the most interesting things that that you write about. Um, uh, we've had more than one person in the studio who, from time to time, have said that um, our current political system, speaking here in Ireland, um, is a conspiracy against the young. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, I'd be right in saying that that's a view you'd have some sympathy for.
1: I do have some sympathy with you.
0: Um, Could you maybe kind of broaden that out a little bit? I mean, first of all, the demographic change is such that our societies have got so much older. And so that... And so uh,
1: relatively quickly as well. Um, Yeah, it's a... The the way I frame it in the book is if you do that 1930s comparison, there are lots of things that are different about now than the 1930s, not least the technology that we're using to record this. But... um, the biggest difference, so the one that I've already mentioned, is so take Britain society I know best. So in the 1930s, actually through to the 1950s, 1% of the population went to university, between 1% and 2%. Um, so it was, you know, no one did, essentially. Um, and now it's, for the young, it's at 45%. But 1930s Britain, the median age was about 25. Um, so that was a society which was basically, half of it was made up of either children or very young adults. Now we're touching 40, um, and we're by no means at the extreme edge of this. So in Italy, and Greece, the median age is 46, 47. In Japan, it's now touching 50. Unimaginable. I mean, it would, someone in the 1930s would look at a society where the median age is 50, so half the population that are 50 or older, and would say, what happened? Did you stop having children? Are you? Is this a dying society? To which the answer is yes, <clears throat> you know, in Japan... We did stop having children, and we are a dying society. Um, in Greece now, I, I think a profound reason why Greece could go through an economic crisis as bad as the Great Depression, with a fascist party in parliament, <clears throat> within a mil- with a military coup within living memory, and its democracy not fall apart, is that Greece is a society of pensioners um, who depend on the state for their pensions. Uh, there are way more pensioners than students. There are way, way more old women than young men. Um, And those kinds of societies are not going to turn to armed insurrectionary politics because there aren't the people to do it. And in Greece, such young people as there are during the crisis tended to emigrate rather than to embrace fascism. And the ones that they left behind, they're just not numerous enough. So it's such a profound change. And then in, in Britain, in the United States, it is the fact now, it used to be said that um, you know, the reason young people lose elections is that they're lazy. You know, students don't get out of bed, they can't be bothered to vote. If they all bothered to show up on the day, they would get their way more. And it's because the pensioners vote that the governments look after the pensions. So if all the young people voted now, they would still lose. There are way more people over the age of 40, even 45, cause, because the voting age only starts at 18. So you're losing all the children. I um, mean, that's something I've talked about, but uh, so th- this imbalance, it's, it's big, it's new. You can't explain Brexit and Trump without the basic fact that if the old people vote and the young people vote, the old people win. And that's only been true within the last couple of decades.
0: And is that not a contributory factor to the stuckness you talked about um, yeah. earlier? Because there, the incentives, political incentives and interests of a person who's 65 are profoundly different from the yeah. person who's 25.
1: Yeah, um, I, I think that's true. And, and so you see it again, probably more acutely in a country like Italy, very, very elderly society, um, very few young people, <clears throat> very few children. Um, on an issue like immigration, same in Japan, older voters tend to be much more resistant to immigration. And so in societies where the old can outvote the young, you often get anti-immigrant parties in power. Um, But the reason these societies are so old is because they've stopped having children. So you've got a double block here, no children, no immigrants. So the society is going to keep getting older. It becomes almost a vicious circle to the point that there is only one way out, and this is probably the route that the Japanese have chosen, which is to wait for the robots. You know, someone someone or something has got to replace the labor of the young if you're not going to have children and you're going to be very resistant to allowing non nationals foreigners to come and live in your country. Um, betting on the robots seems to me to be a really, really high risk r- strategy.
0: It, seemed, uh, it seems a bit bleak.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, they say in Japan they've got these nice robots now in care homes that um, you know, are very friendly. But um, I, I, yet, I am yet to be convinced. I, That's how I want to spend my old age being cared for by a no, robot.
0: No, no, me neither. I mean,. I mean, I mean, this is a pretty bleak process. Is there no... I take your point about the fact that, that young people are now outvoted by uh, older people, so it's not just a question of turnout, as, as people said previously, mm. but is there no possibility of mobilisation? I mean, you, there's yeah. been an awful lot of analysis from, from all quarters, including Francis Fukuyama, about the kind of the, the rise of, of what's called identity politics, and I'm not going get, to get into all that here and now, but it, it strikes me that if there, if there is a, a collective still relatively large group of people who are excluded from owning their homes don't have access to certain privileges that older people have and will never have them like pensions and 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 things of that sort that there might be some form of mobilization in fact i think as we speak there are marches across the planet aren't there by 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 schoolchildren
1: there are my daughter is on one now mine too um yeah I, I i do think that and i don't want to sound too bleak about this so i was giving the sort of yeah the um I think, overly schematic view. It's either death or the robots. Um, I think, in a way, the way to to frame it is politics, democratic politics is always, and while we do it this way, will always be about building coalitions. And you can build new kinds of coalitions. So at the moment, one of the reasons that we're somewhat stuck is that this gap between both the old and the young and the university-educated and the non-university-educated is hard to bridge. Actually, what you saw in the Brexit vote was a skillful bridge-building operation by the Brexiteers where they managed actually to combine votes across this educational divide. So affluent elderly people who lived in the south of England who didn't go to university because they are over 65, and so when they were younger, no-one went to university, but they've done very well in life, voted for Brexit, as did younger, more excluded voters in the north who also didn't. So there was a weird generational bridge there um, across that divide there could be bridge building by skillful politicians the other way too. And actually, I think in a way, in the short term, the future of democratic politics, maybe in the United States, maybe in, in Britain, maybe in other places in Europe, belongs to the politicians who can find that bridge across the generational divide and the educational divide in ways that we haven't seen yet. So I don't think Corbyn has quite managed it. He's very popular with the young, but he really struggles actually with the... The mainstream, I think, sort of centre ground of British politics, always or, or likely to. There may be a limit to how how far he can bridge some of these divides. Macron in France showed that, you know, with a bit of luck and the wind in your sails, uh, you can bridge them. I mean, he, he actually did manage to. I mean, who knows how stable it is, but to assemble a coalition that cut cut across the generational divide. Um, I don't think we've. I don't think we've seen enough politicians trying to do it. There may be a Democratic candidate, a Democrat candidate in the American presidential election who who manages to do this. It's hard, no question, and it needs real political skill, but there's no reason to think that it's not possible.
0: One last question, if you wouldn't mind, and it is going to be about Brexit because we sure. have been all been preoccupied with that over the last. Well, we had the we had the Brexit correspondent of the the Daily Telegraph in in last week, and um, he was arguing. I think his thesis essentially is that no matter what happens, no matter what weird contingencies, well, no matter what John Burko has for his breakfast next Tuesday that causes <laughs> him to do something, no matter what happens in Jeffrey Cox's codpiece or whatever else,
1: yeah. uh, it
0: might be. The the underlying trend of this process uh, for for years already and for the next um, couple of years is towards a, a Britain remaining a part of the customs union, possibly part of the single market. Uh, what's generally called a a soft soft Brexit. And even if there was a no deal element in that in the next in the next few months or so, that's still where it would end up in the end. And that's uh, strip away the contingencies. That is, the, that is the underlying trend. What, what, what would you think
1: of that? Um, that is a good question. I'm not sure that I agree. Um, I certainly can see how. So part of the, I assume, the rationale for that is that in the British House of Commons, that is probably the majority view um, in that instinctively, I think most MPs, not least because they all went to university, regret Brexit. Of course, not all of them, but most of them, would would prefer remain to have won um but they they recognized and they all stood in the last general election almost all of them on manifestos that committed them to enacting the will of the referendum the will expressed in the referendum Um, and so they want the the softest version of it the difficulty under the british system is that um, i think this talk about parliament taking control and and that was part of that agenda that if parliament could take control of this process it could move sooner rather than later to this much softer brexit is that you need a government you need an executive you need a prime minister and a cabinet that will actually do the heavy lifting here the negotiation um, the decision making that's what the executive does parliament can't do that all it can do is pass laws um, or, or signal its views through amendments and so on and it's still hard to get to a government that does that. So yes, a parliament that wants it. Yes. But a government that will do it because the May government won't do it. I don't think Teresa, Teresa may can do it. She, she, she has made too many commitments, even though she has broken a lot too. Um, I, you know, maybe a Corbyn government would do it, but a Corbyn government would need the support of the House of Commons and no Conservative is going to prop up a Corbyn government. And they're, it's probably not there yet. So there is still that barrier that a very partisan political system might have at its heart a consensus around this question. But the consensus is really going to struggle to come out. And I think it must still be possible. I have no idea what's going to happen this week. But we are getting closer to the moment where we will see what the the fundamental choices that the, the parliamentarians face and faced with a fundamental choice where, though they might want that softer Brexit, no one can envisage the government that will deliver it. And no one wants, well, the majority in parliament still don't want a general election. They might end up voting for the May deal. And though the May deal leaves a lot open. The political declaration leaves a lot open. It isn't that. Um, Now it may be what even once the May deal say it were passed. I have no idea if it will be, but say it were passed, it still leaves a lot of room for future softening and so on.
0: Well, indeed, the declaration is only a declaration.
1: It's only a declaration, and and you're all this obsession around the backstop, but under many scenarios. the, the fear of being trapped and it doesn't arise but it doesn't arise because there is lots of scope for you know, that there will be lots lots more negotiation and discussion so mm. yes we may get there but the barrier for me is still the, the broken and stuckness of the democratic system that is delivering this a, a system like the British system which puts extraordinary power in the hands of the executive that has the support the confidence of the parliament, that system has not shown yet that it can get to the place where this seems to be trending. So given that choice relative to your guest last week, I wouldn't downplay the contingencies.
0: David Runciman, thanks very much indeed for joining us today. Thank you and David Runciman's book, How Democracy Ends, is published by Profile. Uh, David will be discussing the book with Katrina Crow as part of the Mountains to Sea Festival in the Pavilion Theatre Dunleary on March the 31st. But that's it for today's podcast. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, and remember that you can subscribe to us on iTunes, or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. You can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. Your views are always extremely welcome. You can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com, or you can usually find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening.